God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we glorify you this day. We are reminded as we gather to worship you that you are the sovereign Lord, that God, you are in heaven. The earth is but your footstool. You are ruling and reigning from your throne. In fact, you do whatever you please. And Lord, you are the only being in all of creation that does as he pleases, for you are the creator. Everyone else exists only by your good pleasure. And Father, we uh, do praise you. We glorify you today. We have come to gather to worship you, to sing praises to your name. We want to offer thanksgiving to you, Lord, for who you are, and also for the great salvation that you have granted to us because of your grace and because of the work and the person of our Lord Jesus, for whom we are very grateful, God. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for this indescribable gift. O Lord, we eagerly look to the day when he will come again, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And Lord, we look to that day as a day of final victory for us saints who are eagerly awaiting it and hoping for it and looking for the glory of that day, indeed the blazing fire of Christ as he returns in heaven. I pray, Lord, that these thoughts and this hope that we have would motivate us to live lives of holiness before you, where we constantly give witness and testimony of your goodness and your mercy. And, Lord, we snatch others out of the fire, even by the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak of your goodness and your mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of gathering here with all of your holy family. Because of Jesus' precious blood, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so. Um, so far, we have gotten in our study of Second Thessalonians this year through verse 9. Last week, we ended at the bottom of page 79 of the notes, or at the top of page 80, actually. And um, last week we looked at the verses, um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read for you um, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9 real quick. I'll comment just a bit on that. Here Paul is trying to encourage the suffering Thessalonians in the midst of their persecution, that Christ is going to come again. And when he comes, their suffering is going to end. And even more than that, they're going to be vindicated on that day by the Lord himself. Paul writes and says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so there Paul talks about specifically what will happen when Christ returns to give relief to the persecuted and suffering Christians. And as I had explained to you when we were talking about verse 7, that this didn't actually come to pass historically in the lives of the Thessalonians to whom Paul wrote. So that presents a problem with the text. In other words, the letter was being written to them. And Paul was, in effect, saying that they should be looking forward to that day when Christ returns as the day of their deliverance. Well, as we've come to know from history... That didn't happen for them. Not only that, it hasn't happened for all the generations of saints who lived and were persecuted 
and who have suffered in this world up until our present generation. However, we know from the context of the New Testament that this concept of imminency is something that we Christians uh, hold to, and that is that Christ is certainly going to come, and that the New Testament teaches us that we should look eagerly to that day, but that it may not necessarily happen in our lifetime. Of course, we all believe this. That is, if indeed we believe the New Testament, and we believe that the New Testament is the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Because those things are very clear. Well, so, if you will, uh, Christians then, not just the Thessalonians, but all Christians are to look to that ultimate day of deliverance when Christ comes again to consummate the ages, when he comes in glory with all of his angels, and he at that time... Uh, does so many things that the Bible talks about will happen in that day. One thing is clear from Paul's text, that day is going to be a day of gloom and darkness, of judgment and clouds, and it's going to be a day of retribution from God toward those who have persecuted his people. When they are identified in this text, they are identified as those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, that includes everyone who is alive at that time and through the course of history who has not known God and obeyed the gospel. Furthermore, that group is spoken of specifically as to the retribution what it will be. And so, if you will, that retribution is pictured by Paul in verses 8 and 9, which is what we looked at last week, where he says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so here Paul talks about not only the judgment that's going to take place when Christ returns, but the very nature of that judgment for all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel is a retribution of eternal proportions. It is something that will last forever. Paul here speaks of the final eschatological wrath of God for all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, which includes those who were persecuting the Thessalonians in their day, and those throughout all the ages who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is indeed a fearful thing. Of course, we talked about that at length last week. So, if you, if you would, with me just for a minute, I want you to step away from the text for a minute and think about this. Paul has in view the second coming of Christ. And what what's specifically in focus when he has this view is he's saying look you guys are going to be uh both delivered and vindicated when christ comes again but when he speaks about that he speaks about specifically how christ is going to judge the wicked and so if you will if you just take a plain reading of the text of second thessalonians chapter 1 verses uh five let's say 5 through 12 okay it's obvious that Christ comes again in history, and when he comes, he brings judgment on the unbelieving world. And when that happens, Paul says that their penalty, their, he calls it, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, I would like to suggest that that alone, a plain reading of that, presents a huge problem for anybody who's a premillennialist. So how many of you are premillennialists? Two? Three? Four? Five? Six? I'm thinking that the whole class is premillennialists and doesn't know it. <laughs> so let me clarify what that means. Obviously there's some confusion. <laughs> Premillennialist simply means that you believe that Christ will return before the millennium. Okay? Or, if you will, that Christ will return and establish the millennial kingdom. Okay? Now, how many of you are premillennialists? 
Okay, that's a great majority of the class. All right, so here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that this text this morning presents a problem for you if you are a premillennialist. And here's this thing, you know, I think that we have a tendency not to think real critically about our own positions in Scripture. We kind of like to think about the things we believe like a badge. And we kind of snap them on our jacket and we walk around with a badge, you know. I'm a premillennialist. <laughs> and then we read Scripture through the eyes of our own interpretation. Without necessarily thinking very critically about the things we believe. And I, family, I want to encourage you not to be that way. Don't think that we have sewn up all of the revelation of Scripture and we have that thing just lined out, sliced, diced, and chopped. We know every jot and tittle, and we can explain to you every little single piece of prophetic literature there is. Surely we can't do that. Amen? Amen. Surely there is plenty of mystery and majesty that lies before us in, in these apocalyptic things about the second coming of Christ to which we look and we just wonder. And we try to put it all together, and God help us, we try. I'm trying desperately. That's what I'm here doing week after week, is to explain to you everything I've learned so far. Right? But even that is, is very limited in its scope. Okay? So it certainly appears that Christ is going to return before the millennium. Amen? Amen? And now when he gets here, he's going to establish this millennial kingdom, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign for a thousand years. Just like the Bible says, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly appears that way for everybody who's reading their Bible in a historical, grammatical sense, right? Mm -hmm. That's the hermeneutic that we use to arrive at the interpretation of premillennialism, okay? So, what is this problem I'm pointing you to? Well, I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> if you weren't thinking critically about this passage of text and how it fits into your premillennial worldview, I'm going to help you think critically about it this morning, okay? So, top of page 80. In this text, there is a difficult... By the way, I'm a premillennialist, if I didn't say that. I hope you already knew that. <laughs> In this text, there is a difficulty for premillennialism, which I shall here undertake to explain. The judgment pictured here, that is in verses 7 through 9, seems to be final in its scope for the entire world of unbelievers. This would favor an ah-mill or post-mill view as Christ would simply culminate the ages at this time by the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. So follow me here. Here's what I'm saying. If we're just going along through the course of time, from the cross forward, and... This day of the second coming of Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to do what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Then, just a straightforward reading of that says, when Christ shows up, guess what? All the world of unbelievers is immediately going to be destroyed with eternal destruction. Do you understand? Yeah, so who's left in the world for a millennial kingdom? You with me? If, if what Paul says comes to pass in the manner that he seems to be speaking of it, then we have a huge problem. I mean, what's going to happen? Christ is going to show up in the sky. All the unbelievers are going to die. Who's going to be left? Nothing but the saints. Is that, is that the nature of the millennial kingdom? No. no, it's not, is it? Did you see that this presents a problem for your premillennialism? So if you just take it for the way it reads in its context only without knowing anything else about what the biblical context says about the second coming of Christ, then it sounds like Christ comes at the second coming and the whole world of unbelievers is completely and utterly destroyed. Furthermore, if you're thinking of it in the context of the day of the Lord, well, that surely would be the case. Why? Because Zephaniah says... That when uh, at the day of the Lord, God is going to sweep everything off the face of the earth. 
Zephaniah says at the end of chapter 1 in his prophecy that the Lord is going to make a sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what the minor prophets say about the day of the Lord. Isaiah says that the, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere. Right? Behold, the cruel day of burning anger is coming, Isaiah says, chapter 13, about the day of the Lord. Right? And uh, there are many places in the Old Testament where the day of the Lord is spoken of as a final day of reckoning that wipes out all the unbelievers in the world. I could quote more. There's, they're already here in the notes. We've looked at them before. Okay? So what I'm saying is, if you just took what Paul said as a straightforward reading and you did it with the knowledge of what the Old Testament has to say about that, then you have a huge problem for premillennialism. But if you're an amillennialist, well, that fits perfect. Why? Because you don't believe there'll be a millennial kingdom and you believe that when Christ returns, he's going to consummate the ages at that point in time with the great white throne judgment, which is also what post-millennials believe. Okay? So what keeps us premillennialists from ascribing that uh, way of seeing those scriptures is one text in scripture. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Okay? And because we read that scripture, it tells us that there is a thousand year period that intervenes between the second coming of Christ and the final destruction of God's eschatological wrath on the whole world of unbelievers. It tells us that there is a thousand year interval between that happening. Okay? That's kind of where I'm headed with all of this. So then, picking up there in the notes. <clears throat> However, a plain reading of Revelation 19.11 through 20.10 shows a thousand year period of Christ's reign upon the earth with his priests, those who had part in the first resurrection. Now, I talked about the first resurrection back when we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 9. And in there we talked about the fact that there's two resurrections seen in Scripture. One is a resurrection of the righteous, which in Revelation 20 is called the first resurrection. And then there is the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the wicked dead at the great white throne judgment, when God's final eschatological wrath is poured out on the whole world of unbelievers and Satan is destroyed and the whole present heavens and earth are destroyed at the day of the Lord's final consummation. Okay? All of that happens at the end of Revelation 20. Uh, at the end of Revelation 20. So then, um, remember when we talk about the first resurrection, we're talking about the rapture. We're talking about that time when Christ, the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel, right? With the trumpet call of God and what? The dead in Christ will rise first and the, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever, okay? That's the first resurrection. That is pictured in Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 in the course of events that's taking place there. I want to read for you what's going on in Revelation 20. If you have your Bible, grab it. I'm going to go all the way back to Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to start at verse 11. Here we have pictured the second coming of Christ, okay? Okay. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's that? Jesus, the living Word. Amen? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
Okay, there's all his saints. He's coming with all of his saints, with 10,000 of his holy ones, right? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and all the flesh of all men both free men and slaves and small and great. It's a big deal going on here. You get it? Mm -hmm. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him and who sat on the horse and against his army. Who's the beast? No. Who's the beast? The Antichrist. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who had worshipped his image, and, to, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now, what's Jesus' first order of business when he gets back? He's going to destroy the Antichrist. How? He's going to throw him in the lake of fire. Okay, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist will be destroyed by the splendor of Christ's coming. Okay, Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Verse 20, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. You see that? Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so when the thousand years are completed, we have a final rebellion of the nations, right? And the destruction of Satan. You see that? And the last enemy to be destroyed is? Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death. And Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
okay? I want to end with, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea, okay? So <clears throat> that context of Revelation 20 is very telling, isn't it? about what happens when Christ comes again. And it tells us about this thousand-year interval that Pauline eschatology doesn't tell us about. Are you with me? And if you will, um, there is events that are spoken of in the Revelation of John. Man, this scripture wasn't even written down until, I'm, I'm assuming, after Paul was dead. We don't even know if Paul had this revelation specifically about these timing and this millennial kingdom and this specific period of time. Not only that, but in Revelation 20, we see an order of events taking place. We see Christ coming and then first order, he's killing the Antichrist and destroying the kings of the earth and the governmental powers. Fall and fall and is Babylon the Great. Right? And the, the harlot on the, on the horse that's drunk with the blood of the saints, she's just been destroyed. And, and, and uh, the whole economic and religious system of mankind has come crashing to the ground. And when Christ returns, he brings all of that uh, earthly authority to its, to its end. Because he's about to establish his heavenly authority on earth. And when he does that, he destroys the kings of the earth. He throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And he's got one bad angel that grabs Satan and sticks him in the abyss with a great chain. Amen? Jesus is coming in flaming fire with his mighty angels. Big bad dudes. Bigger and badder than Satan. Amen? You see that? And so then he binds Satan. Destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet, kills the kings of the earth, and binds Satan. Right? And then is pictured the resurrection of these saints who are going to rule and reign as his priests for a thousand years on the earth. Question, who are they going to rule and reign over? Or with? Or what's that all about? Okay, and who are these nations that rebel in this final rebellion against uh, Christ and his priests? Who are they? Where do they come from? If they were destroyed here at the second coming of Christ and there's no, no unbelievers left in the world, who are these nations who are going to rebel? Well, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that that's a huge problem for premillennialism if you just read what Paul says without understanding this context of Revelation 20. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Is that clear? Yes. Okay, so this is why it's important when we come across events in Scripture that find themselves in the context of the whole Bible in various places for us not to just jump to conclusions about what those texts say in and of themselves, even in their context. Because 2 Thessalonians finds its context in the New Testament, right? Which means if it talks about the second coming of Christ, then it is subject to the context of the second coming of Christ in all of the New Testament. Amen? And the New Testament finds itself in the context of the whole Bible, which makes it subject to those things which talk about the second coming of Christ in the whole Bible. Amen. Are you with me? Yes. You understand what I'm saying? So it's important that we take all of these passages of Scripture and we put them together to try to understand what all they're saying to us. Tremendous amount of revelation that God has given us. Amen. Amen. Amen? But think about all that stuff in Revelation 20. If we didn't know that, there wouldn't even be a thing called premillennialism. It would just look to us like Christ comes and consummates the ages. It would look very much like an ah-mill or a post-mill view. Are you with me? But because of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15, all of that stuff becomes much more clear. Okay? So, when you begin to consider what's happening in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15, now you have a problem uh, with understanding what the day of the Lord means. 
Because when you read what the day of the Lord says, it sounds like Christ just comes and immediately wipes everybody off the face of the earth. Okay? So what is that all about? Because we know what's clear in Paul's writing, both in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3, and in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through chapter 2, verse 3, Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ as the day of the Lord. In both letters, he refers to this second coming of Christ as the day of the Lord. Remember, in chapter 1, uh, in 1 in, uh, Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, he said uh, that the, uh, then when they were all saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction would come upon them, right? And they wouldn't escape this day of the Lord, right? Remember that? Well, Paul is going to tell the Thessalonians here shortly in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, that those things won't happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he calls that in chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Lord. So what I'm telling you is, Paul calls this second coming of Christ the day of the Lord. If you take that and understand its context in the Old Testament, that means that Christ is going to come and destroy everything. Okay? When you read the passages concerning the day of the Lord, you see a sudden cataclysmic end to everything on the face of the earth. Even Peter in the New Testament describes it as a day when the heavens and earth will pass away with a roar and all the elements will melt in fire. So if Paul calls that the day of the Lord... Even here, the whole earth will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. Can that happen? No. no. Why? Because of what John has revealed to us in Revelation chapter 20. Because we see the whole earth passing away in Revelation 20, don't we? When? At the great white throne judgment, after the millennial kingdom, after the final rebellion, after the destruction of Satan, and after the last enemy to be destroyed, death, which is thrown into hell. Thrown, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. Okay? And the very next verse of Scripture says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. So, you see, those things are very, there's a clear chronology in Scripture of how those things unfold. So here's what I'm saying. You've got to take Paul's writings. You've got to take the Minor Prophets. You've got to take the Olivet Discourse. And all that has to be factored in as to what's happening. Are you with me? Okay, I'm going to read on then. So then, during this final 1,000-year reign is also <laughs> depicted a final rebellion of the nations of mankind when Satan will be released from his prison. That's pictured in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Several things are clearly implied from this text. First, there are unbelieving nations upon the earth during the millennial kingdom. For they will be gathered and deceived by Satan for the final rebellion. Revelation 20 verse 8. Second, this means that all the nations of unbelievers cannot be totally destroyed at the second coming. For they would cease to exist therefore in the millennial kingdom. Third, it is clear from these matters, therefore, that some amount of unbelievers must be survivors of the awful events of the second coming upon the unbelieving world and enter into the millennial kingdom to populate the earth. Fourth, it is over these nations whom Christ and his priests reign with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. Do you understand how I'm reasoning through that? Okay. On this basis, then, the difficulty of the judgment pictured in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, apparently being final in its scope for the entire world of unbelievers, is resolved by the idea that the day of the Lord is only inaugurated at the second coming, but the full scope of the events of it cannot take place until the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, when the judgment pictured in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, shall be fully consummated. That's a mouthful. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that what resolves this problem for premillennialists, the one that you didn't know that you had, 
<laughs> this is another thing prophecy teachers rarely do. They, they rarely put the problems with their own views uh, up for display and explain through those with passages of scripture. You understand? Because they're trying to make their point. They want everybody to adopt their view, right? Which is great. Hey, I'd love for you to adopt my view because I believe it to be true. However, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that we understand the truth as it's revealed in Scripture, period. And we're simply trying to conform our view to that, right? So we should always be critical of our own view, especially with such a complex thing as the second coming of Christ and the timing of the rapture and the millennial kingdom and all those things. That's a very complex issue in Scripture. Amen? Amen. And not only that, but both Jesus and Paul told us, do not be deceived about that. And then they gave us a whole bunch of revelation about it and expect for us to understand and know, right? So it's important that we do diligence in in understanding these things. But nevertheless, what I'm saying is this problem where it sounds like Paul is saying, well, Jesus is going to show up and all the unbelievers are going to be destroyed. That is resolved by understanding that the day of the Lord is not simply just one day in history. And what I'm suggesting is that it gets inaugurated. And this is where I gave you the, the picture on the back of, or on page 81. If you look at page 81, I want you to notice on the, um, uh, t- near the right, near the top, it says the day of the Lord. You see that? Mm-hmm. And then it points down to two boxes. And those two boxes are what I'm calling the day of the Lord inaugurated and the day of the Lord consummated. Okay, and what I'm suggesting is, is that when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, there is a conflation. There is a conflation of prophetic events inherent in the idea of the day of the Lord. Because many things actually happen during the day of the Lord, not just the destruction of unbelievers. Okay? The Bible describes it in many, many different ways. And it's described in the mouth of many, many different writers in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and uh, both in major prophets, in the minor prophets, and in the apostles. Okay? And so there's a lot that the Bible says about it. But my point is, is that there is a conflation. Conflation, think about it this way. When, when two rivers come together, they call that a confluence. Okay? And so the idea is, many places in Scripture, you may read about a prophetic event. But what's actually in the words of that prophetic event are several prophetic events that happen over the course of history. Okay? I'll give you an example. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah is prophesying prophesying about the new heavens and the new earth. Right about verse 17, 18, 19. He's saying something like this. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In it, he who lives to be a hundred will be considered to be accursed. Okay, now, all of a sudden, Isaiah is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and yet he's talking about death happening in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, how does that happen? It can't. It can't happen. Why do, how do we know that? Right, well, because Revelation 20 tells us that when the new heaven and the new earth comes, there'll no longer be any death, nor mourning, nor dying, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. So how can Isaiah say, in the new heavens and the new earth, people are going to die? You understand? There's a conflation of events in Isaiah 65. Okay? Isaiah has pictured there the millennial kingdom with the background of the new heavens and the new earth. And he's trying to explain this thing that he really hardly can grasp. Right? He's trying to explain this understanding from the word of the Lord. Right? And this is very often the nature of prophecy. That the the Lord will speak and it will be encompassing events that happen over several thousand years. Okay? 
Um, so uh, when you think about conflation, you need to think about that. We also call this near and far fulfillments. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Near and far fulfillments. Because you may read about a, a certain set of events in Scripture, and some of those are fulfilled in the near sense, and some of those are fulfilled in the far sense. So some of them may happen in the course of history now. Others may not happen till a thousand years is over. Okay? And so it's important to understand this about prophecy. We call it conflation. Okay? And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading on. Um, there is then a conflation. See Grudem, page 1129, for an explanation of conflation. So I pointed you there so that I didn't have to spend like 30 minutes in class describing what conflation is, okay? It's very important for you to understand. Grudem explains it pretty well, I think. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but he does explain it well. There's a conflation of prophetic events pictured here in this passage where events spoken of have several stages of fulfillment in the course of history. In this case, the judgment pictured in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 is inaugurated at the second coming, but not consummated until the great white throne judgment when all the unbelieving world will be finally banished from God's presence forever. So what I'm saying is when Christ comes in flaming fire with his mighty angels, there's going to be a whole lot of unbelievers that get destroyed. But not all of them. How do I know that? Because I know that the millennial kingdom is filled with nations on the earth. Nations who are unbelievers because at the end of that time, they're going to be gathered together by Satan to come and make war against Christ. Okay? And so there's a conflation. There's a conflation of unbelievers who get destroyed immediately upon his coming on the day that the day of the Lord is inaugurated. And it's also speaking of God's final eschatological wrath for the whole world of unbelievers, which isn't finally consummated until the end of the uh, uh, millennial kingdom at the consummation of the day of the Lord. So when you're looking at the picture and you see those two boxes, and one says the day of the Lord inaugurated, that's when Christ shows up in the sky and uh, wipes out the Antichrist and the kings of the earth and all the governmental powers and authorities on the earth, and many, many people are killed and destroyed by that. I, I think those events are actually all portrayed in the latter chapters of Revelation. And, and there's a new, kind of a new panorama that John sees when Jesus comes of the actual second coming, but those things that are happening on the earth, the, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are things that are happening as a result of Christ coming in the sky. Okay, so that's, that's another argument for another day. But uh, have you ever wondered when you start reading through Revelation, is this whole thing chronological or what's the scoop? How come here all of a sudden in the middle of chapter 12, we're talking about Israel and she was born... You know, you know, 2,000 years ago, and yet we're seeing, you know, uh, Satan swinging his tail and casting a third of the stars to the earth and all that stuff that happened before the creation even happened, before the creation of the world. And yet that's all pictured in the course of Revelation in chapter 12. You following me? And so you're wondering, well, what is, is, is Revelation chronological? And the answer is yes and no. And so kind of working that out, in my mind, takes a lot of years and careful study of the rest of the Bible to try and grasp what all those things are. Remember this chart that I had? Remember that? And of course, in here, you know, he's showing when the trumpet judgments begin. See, he shows that the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments actually begin after the rapture. So that puts Revelation chapter 8 and following and Revelation chapter uh, uh, 16 and following pictured after the rapture, okay? And so if you will, uh, there's a whole lot of things to chew on when we start talking about how all those events unfold, all right? Okay, I'm not going to go there anymore. Uh, today, anyway. <laughs> so um, what I'm saying is, is that this problem for premillennialism that exists in the text of 2 Thessalonians 1, where it sounds like Christ just comes and all the world of unbelievers is destroyed, that problem is resolved by understanding that the day of the Lord is something that actually takes a thousand years to culminate. 
It's inaugurated on the day of history when the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, right? For the, the sun will be darkened and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's the day that it's consummated when Christ returns and breaks into time and space physically, personally, bodily, right? I'm sorry, yeah, that's the day when it's inaugurated, okay? That sets off a chain of events that goes on for a thousand years. First off being, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, he's going to destroy the beast and the false prophet, he's going to raise all the dead in Christ and gather them together in heaven, in the air, before all the eyes of the world to see. Then he is going to establish his millennial kingdom on the earth after he binds Satan. And uh, he's going to set up his governmental power on the earth and he's going to reign from his throne in Jerusalem. At that time, he is going to save the whole ethnic nation of Israel. When Christ returns and the day of the Lord is inaugurated, Israel is going to be saved. The surviving people of the ethnic nation of Israel who are alive on the earth at that time. Yes. So that, is that where you would put Romans 11? Yes, that's where I would put Romans 11. And many, many other places. I'm thinking specifically Zechariah chapter 12 through 14. Christ is going to return. When he returns, the whole uh, nation of Israel is going to see him. The Bible says that they will, uh, those who pierced him will see him and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And on that day, a spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out on the house of David. Right? And the healing waters are going to flow. Right? And the whole corporate nation of Israel is going to become regenerate at that point in time. Okay, now here's the difference between Israel and the church. The church is glorified. They are raptured and the dead in Christ are raised and they receive glorified bodies. They ascend to be with Christ in the air. Israel is on the earth. Their existence is physical, earthly. They become regenerate at that time, receiving the Messiah, right? Through faith, just like the rest of us, right? Because God in that day pours out his grace upon their house, right? This grace is, is seen in regeneration. But, but when they are saved, they at that time are going to get their tribal allotments of the land. And Christ is going to restore to them all the promises that he made to them through the mouth of the prophets. All the way back from the time of Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing is how we categorize all those prophets that God, all those promises that God made to Israel through the prophets. And it's at that time that they are going to be physically realized by the nation of Jacob in his land. And they are all going to receive their tribal allotments by family name. And furthermore, they're going to live there in peace for a thousand years under King Jesus who rules in Jerusalem. And I've pointed this out to you 10 times in the last two years in this class when we've looked at Zechariah chapter 14 and Zechariah chapter 12. You can go back in the notes and you can see that. Even back two years ago when we were talking about the person, the work of Christ, and we talked about his exaltation. I was explaining to you there's going to come a day when he's going to rule as king over the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. The very words of Zechariah 14 talk about Jesus ruling on his own throne in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel. And they, uh, both Ephraim and um, Judah will be one people in the land together under the kingship of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Sorry if I'm rambling. and There's so much in the Bible about what happens at this time. Amen? Amen. You with me? But I I can't leave that out. That's very significant. But what I'm saying is, when the day of the Lord is inaugurated, there's a whole chain of events that begins to unfold. I mean, they've got to clean the place up. It's going to be a wreck. It's going to be a mess. Let me tell you, it's going to be a mess. And all those uh, times, Daniel speaks about how there's going to be a reconsecration of the Temple Mount. And and, uh, that there's, uh, you know, behold... uh, uh, 
uh, him who, uh, who is able to stick it out, right, to the, to the uh, 1,335 days are fulfilled. You know, he's talking about, of course, from this time, from the time of the abomination desolation until the time that Christ reconsecrates the temple mount, okay? Blessed is he who endures till that day, right? Because when that day comes, listen, the place is cleaned up, Jesus is on the throne, and there's perfect peace in the land, Right? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea on that day. You with me? Ain't going to be a bunch of rebels running around in the world blaspheming his name. But there will be rebellers. There will. At the end of that time, there's going to be some rebels. And, of course, you see their fate clearly there in the end of Revelation. So going on. Therefore, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will indeed come and destroy all governmental powers, the kings of the earth, and the demonic rulers of the world at that time, Antichrist and false prophet, and all the wicked nations of unbelievers who persecute and oppress the saints will either be destroyed in the trumpet and bold judgments or subdued under Christ's establishment of his millennial kingdom. So here's what I'm saying. There's going to be a whole company of unbelievers who are subdued under Christ's coming rule and allowed to survive and populate the nations of the world for the millennial kingdom. If you have an ark... The purpose of that, I mean, is that... Yes, the purpose of that is so that the last Adam can have his physical rule on the earth for all the eyes of mankind to see. Jesus must rule on his throne in Jerusalem so that the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets can be fulfilled. Amen. And, and I would like to say that guys who are reading into the Old Testament text that say that specifically, Jesus will rule, and they go and they read into that and they say, no, that's Jesus ruling in heaven right now from God's right hand. Simply don't believe what the Bible says. Okay, so that's why I'm a premillennialist. And that's why you're a premillennialist. Because you're an evangelical Christian. You, you are a Bible-believing Christian. Of course, that's a pretty uh, hefty uh, accusation I'm making against people who take allegorical interpretations. But I really believe it is a terrible thing to do to Scripture. And although I have plenty of evangelical brothers who are all millennialists who take those words of the prophets as allegories and so on and so forth, I, I think it is a very destructive and detrimental way to treat the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I'm thinking that we need to take the Bible for what it says in its plain literal sense. Mm-hmm. And if we can't possibly make sense out of it, then we need to get on our knees and pray. Mm-hmm. But the Bible says what God intends to say and that is exactly what's going to happen in the course of history whether it seems unbelievable or not That's right. Amen. so yes ma'am Well, I, because Jesus says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats when he comes back. Depends on your view of what happens in Matthew 25. But personally, I do believe that is the nations who are gathered before Christ who will be there for, actually for a thousand years. And that judgment where he separates the sheep from the goats, in my view, is something that's not fully consummated until the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay? So if you're a pre-tribulational premillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist, a pre-tribber, most pre-tribbers read that as something that happens immediately when Christ returns, okay? And again, I'm saying if you read it that way, you have the same problem. Why? Because in Matthew 25, Jesus, the, the, with the judgment of the sheep and the goats, what happens to all the goats? <laughs> Matthew 25:46. these will pay the penalty of everlasting destruction, okay? And so you wind up with the same problem. You understand what I'm saying? Well, not really, because the sheep that are left aren't, aren't Christians. They're ones who didn't take the mark of the beast, right? Okay, surely. Surely you, can take, surely you could take that, that view of Matthew 25. I think that's fully within the pale of, uh, of an understanding of premillennialism. 
So if you will, if you read the com commentaries on that, you'll find five or six different views on what people see happening in Matthew 25. And it would probably take me a whole class to take that text apart and explain what I see happening in the context of all of Scripture there. Okay? So, sorry, but I don't have time for that. Uh, and I hope I didn't confuse anybody by that. But... Uh, but I, I do believe that those nations that are pictured there being judged by Christ are nations that are going to be in the millennial kingdom, being judged by Christ throughout the millennial kingdom. And the final consummation of that happens at the end of the age. Happens at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. Well, let's see. I'm out of time. Can I, can I tackle this right here? Okay, well, let me just end by saying this. Look at the picture on page 81. There I am explaining that idea that the day of the Lord is consummated before the millennium and that, I'm sorry, that it's inaugurated before the millennium and that it is consummated at the end of the millennium. And if you look at the boxes on the right side, I'm actually listing several scripture references there that talk about uh, when that consummation of the day of the Lord is actually shown in different passages of Scripture. Okay? And so you kind of have to dig into that. If you're really interested in that, you, you have to dig into that and look at those Scriptures and see what I'm talking about. So, for example, when Peter talks about the day of the Lord, he says that the whole heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire. Mm -hmm. So he can't possibly be talking about this. Mm -hmm. Not if you're a premillennialist. You understand what I'm saying? So when must that happen? Well, it has to happen at the end, which is where we see it happening in Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the millennium. That's when the day of the Lord's final consummation takes place when the heavens and the earth are destroyed by fire. Okay? However, Paul calls the day of the Lord the day Jesus shows up in the sky. In flaming fire with his mighty angels. What does he do? He descends from heaven. And the dead in Christ rise first. And we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then in Revelation, he destroys the Antichrist. He destroys the false prophet. He binds Satan and he establishes his kingdom on the earth. That's what Paul calls the day of the Lord. Okay? So how can we resolve that? Well, it can only be resolved by understanding that this whole time period is the day of the Lord, the whole millennial kingdom. All right? That's how I understand that. I am more than happy to try to answer any questions. If you have a question and you want me to deal with it and you, you even have a challenge for me where it doesn't seem like what I'm saying adds up, write that question down and I will bring it before the class and I will give a healthy explanation for it. Because I don't want you to be confused. In my mind, these things are really clear. I, I'm not saying I have every little jot until it worked out. But generally speaking, I, I think I understand how it unfolds. It's pretty clear to me. Um, and I don't want to confuse you. Furthermore, Paul doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want us to be deceived. Furthermore, when Jesus thinks about these things, he's not confused. <laughs> And when the apostles ask him, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He goes and he explains very clearly how those things will unfold. And um, he gets through that and, and he's saying, look, see, I've told you ahead of time. So that when these things happen, you won't be confused. Instead, he says, when these things begin to happen, what? Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And of course, those things he explains there are the very things that Paul says are going to happen before the coming of the Lord, which is the final, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the falling away and the revelation of the Antichrist, which we're going to bump into here next week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Shall we pray? God, our Father, we thank you for these amazing things that you have revealed to us in Scripture.
I pray, God, that you would help us to carefully consider uh, all of these scriptures and to read over them and to ponder them and to think about them and to uh, think about how they should impact our lives and to think about how you view the world, God, and how you view good and evil and, Lord, how you are ultimately going to come and judge, God, that we shouldn't take sin lightly. And that, Lord, we shouldn't take the, the world of unbelieving people lightly. That, Lord, there is a desperate message that we preach by which your elect people are snatched out of the fire. And, Lord, we are the means. We preach the gospel and you save. And so I pray that we would be emboldened to speak even as these Thessalonians were emboldened. And I pray, God, that we would see people get saved. As we speak and preach the gospel, let us be faithful to the message. And Father, we just thank you for the privilege of having all of this knowledge and understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart and that we would, in fact, respond with lives of holiness. And Lord, that we would learn how to both glorify and enjoy you all of our days. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Amen.